copy of God's Word to James chapter 2. We continue to work our way uh, through James. Uh, one of the things that struck me a lot about this particular study through James, um, and, and particularly because I'm trying to hold in my thoughts the idea that James is writing to a, a community of believers, probably mostly Jewish, but had been uh, dispersed from Jerusalem and then were the provinces of Rome uh, in places where they were clearly uh, the minority and places where if they were faithful and were indeed light in their communities at a certain point, uh, their beliefs and their practices would bring them into, uh, into tension, uh, to say it in, a, in the nicest sort of way with the culture that they lived in. Uh, if they persisted, uh, they might even be brought into places where trials would come, uh, persecution would begin. If they persisted even further, and they did eventually, and it resulted in their being persecuted. In holding it in that tension, uh, it just seems to me that the book of James speaks particularly uh, significantly and relevantly to the culture we live in today. Uh, I caught on the news this morning, a, uh, I think it was a Toronto Blue Jays baseball player who had posted something on his social media site regarding uh, supporting a boycott. I don't know what company it was, whether it was Target or some other company for their push for transgender, uh, transgenderism. And apparently this morning they had him on the national news uh, making an apology. Uh, and so now he's backing away from what he believed to be the right thing, lest he lose his job perhaps as a major league pitcher. Uh, that's even more striking when they cited his statistics that he had, uh, he'd only allowed four hits in 10 games. So he is not, he's not an expendable type of athlete. That's the kind of pitchers you want. In fact, I heard one newscaster say, I hope they get rid of him because the Braves could use him. That's not an expendable athlete. But yet, so threatened was his ability to play National League baseball that he saw fit to back away from his own convictions that he posted on his social site and yield to the pressure of the, this generation. And it breaks my heart because I feel like we're in an area I was sharing with Hope this morning, but as a preacher uh, right now, you expect me to say things uh, according to the scripture. In fact, you wouldn't like me if I didn't. So I have a little bit of liberty to speak the truth here, but you work in corporate America, many of you, and you don't enjoy that same liberty. In fact, if you make 50 or you make $100,000 a year in, in the corporate world, your very livelihood is at stake if you say the very same things that I'm saying in the pulpit to which you would say here, amen. And I wondered if the cost, as it rises, what will we be able to do? And James is speaking to those issues. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall under diverse trials, for, the, for it's a refining process for your faith. So be joyful in the trial because the trial demands that you jettison all that is not faith and that you be, live by faith. But there's a cost to that. First, it might be mockery. First, it, later, it might become marginalization. It might even rise to the point of you can't work in corporate America. It might result in that you can't teach in a public school system. 
It might result that you can't hold any but the least, the most menial, low-paying jobs altogether. It might even be at some point to where you can't even hold those. And if you can't work, then you can't pay your taxes. So next to come will be your eviction from your home and the takeover of your property by government officials. And pretty soon, the Christian cost for being faithful might be homelessness getting what you can from the land. And then when, when that begins to be a burden and a menace to society, perhaps the idea will come to someone's mind. We need to isolate these people because they're dangerous and they're domestic terrorists. And so let's imprison them. And if they imprison so many of them, then the cost of keeping them in prison and supporting them will come into question as well. These people are menaces to society. They're domestic terrorists, and it's costing us a fortune to feed these non-desirables. And somebody will propose, maybe we ought to just put them out of their misery. And then there'll be executions. Then the cost is your life, not your livelihood not your reputation, not your comfort, but your very life. And I, we've seen that unfold in history. And there's no reason to think that we're not on that course today. As part of my introduction, I wanted to think, think about something before we get to what James is saying here. There, there was a time when one of the highest assets of a young man and a young woman was their, their chastity. They kept themselves for a time when finally this man would propose to this young lady and there would be a courtship and he would propose marriage and both of them would come into the marriage being sexually pure and the, and the highlight consummation of the marriage was in their intimacy. And we held to that as a valued reality in our culture. But then something happened. People that we love failed, men and women. And we had church members, had, had relatives for whom that happened. And it struck a heart of compassion. And on the other side of that, often the church reacted harshly and in condemnation and drove them away. So you have, you have an overreaction by the church when there was a failure. And then you have a compassion for members in the church when there was a failure. And pretty soon we, we began to begin not to preach of the truth of sexual purity to the point to where now I would guess 50%, and that's generous, of marriages are between people, both men and, women, men and women, who were sexually active far before they got married, perhaps multiple times. And it became an accepted norm in society. There was a time when marriage was viewed as between one man and one woman for life. The covenant of marriage was held in high esteem. In fact, I was from a broken home, and I remember even in my generation where my mother divorced, raising four children, was shunned in many ways in the community. Again, the church did not reach out and with compassion. It, 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 it shunned her away, so it pushed, her, pushed us away in many ways, but, but then it happened to church members, children, and their friends. And the same thing happened as well. The church's harsh reaction drove some away and then there was a compassion in the church and, and because they were being driven away and we want to include them even if they've gone through divorce and, and somewhere along the way 
by our generation, over 50% of the marriages within the church, we, we reach the same divorce rate within the church as the culture does in general. And we stop preaching the truth because it was uncomfortable and it made families uncomfortable because their family members had gone through this and it felt like it wasn't compassionate. So, so we began to ease off on the truth of that. And we are where we are today. And then something as outrageous as homosexuality came along and more and more we began to be acclimated by, by the culture and, and the church stood strong and they preached the word and they held out the truth and sometimes they overreacted as unusual but at the same time it began to happen in people's families. Their children came out, quote unquote. They had friends who were gay and so in order not to offend them, we backed away from that a little bit. We were too condemning in some ways. And so they pushed away from the church. And, and pretty soon along the way, homosexuality became just the norm. I always am amazed. We watch Fox News and now there's this heated debate about transgenderism. But yet they invite what I still call Bruce Jenner onto the stage, onto the platform to give a commentary what's wrong with transgenderism and pushing the agenda and competing in sports, men and women's sports in schools. And he himself is dressed like a woman. And so now Fox News has embraced homosexuality and even transgenderism to a different degree. And as it gets more popular in culture and as more of the church members, family members and friends fall to that sin, we stop hearing about homosexuality. And today, the big thing is the transgenderism. Now, here's my question. If we follow the same pattern that we have for generations, how long will it be before we sp stop speaking the truth in regards to transgenderism? How long will it be before our family members spark in our own hearts compassion because they fall to those sins as well? So we, we are less likely to speak the truth. How long will it be before transgenderism is, is embraced and looked at as blasé? And more frightening than that is how long will it be before things like pedophilia and on down the line be, follow the same course and they're accepted in the culture. And the spiral is downhill in a way that terrifies me, even for my lifetime, not to mention the lifetime of my children and grandchildren. That may be the world they live in. And I think the book of James speaks powerfully to those practical considerations. Because even in this text where he's talking about faith and works, and we can read that and say, okay, well, we don't want to be of works. We're, we're by faith and works. And we read on past that. But if you think about what he's saying into that sort of context, what is going to guard you now from leaking over into an environment to where there may be pressure from the outside that will be completely content with you saying that I'm a person of faith? But they will not be as content if you actually practice that faith. So they, he's speaking to what I think would be a fleshly inclination to just say, well, you know something, I'll just keep my faith to myself. You've heard me say this often, but the early Christians were persecuted simply for not walking by a little canister and taking some incense and pitching it into a flame and saying, Caesar is Lord. They don't care if you believe it. Caesar doesn't care if you believe that. Caesar is about you yielding to his authority to demand that you do it. And many Christians could have said, I'm a person of faith. 
And that don't mean anything to me, so I can do that, and I'll just do that and walk on, and we can have our faith. Well, you're being disobedient to God. The Christians who would not do that went to their grave saying, Christ is Lord and Lord alone. And they paid the high cost of their lives in the Colosseum at the entertainment of the very culture that demanded that they say Caesar is Lord. So this book is eminently practical. So let's read from verse 14 to 26. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. And I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one or there's one God, you do well. It's almost as if he's saying, congratulations, the demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I just pray this morning for myself and the speaking and the preaching and the communicating and those who are gathered here in the hearing that you would set apart my mouth and their ears and all of our hearts to the truth of your word. We are living in a perilous time and Father, sometimes I wonder if we've not crossed some threshold from which there is no return until there is great suffering and perhaps we're descending now into the context in which that'll happen. And Father, I pray for mercy if that's the case and I pray for revival if you would turn that around in this nation today. But Father, I pray that we would hold fast to the truth, that we wouldn't be the generation who, because we've experienced it, we soft-pedaled the truth and we overreacted harshly and drove people away. Father, help us to be faithful in our own generation. And Father, help us not to be selfish as well. Help us not to seek in this generation our own comfort, our own prosperity, our own, our own good completely oblivious to the, to the impacts of our decision upon our children and grandchildren and the generations that follow. Someone will live with the world we're creating today or they will die. So help us this morning in your word, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that strikes me in regards to such an important subject as faith is how little James says about what that faith is. 
In fact, he's not really specific about the works. The most specific he's been uh, up until now is uh, the statement, true religion is this, caring for the fatherless and the orphans and the widows and keeping oneself unstained from the world. But you would think a man who's going to do a discourse on faith and works would have taken some time to, to exegete what it is faith is. But he doesn't do that. And I think the assumption is that they know what faith is. He calls them brethren. They're not brethren, not in the strictest sense, unless they've come to be born again. They know what faith is. And so he assumes that in verse 14. What use is it, my brethren? If someone has, says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? One of the things that's interesting to me as well is that you could sum his whole argument up in the idea that faith has its works. And if I was going to make that argument, I would first want you to know what faith is. I think he's assuming they understand what faith is. And I think what he's guarding them against is a faith that says it's something, but manifests itself as something else or nothing at all. And so that's the heart of his exhortation is faith has its works. And it's extremely difficult to demonstrate that faith without works. Like I said, he doesn't delineate specific works. What kind of works does faith? That's my question. Okay, James, you tell me faith works. Tell me, James, what sort of works should faith produce? It's amazing to me that he doesn't talk about that at all. It's just this broad term, works. Faith without this is dead. What's that, James? I ain't going to tell you. Why so broad? And the more I studied this, the more I think you could bring that down to the bottom line, which is really not work so much as it is obedience. Faith manifests itself in obedience. The works are the obedience. The Christian doesn't just go do works and therefore verify or authenticate that he has faith. You can do works and not have faith. In fact, in Matthew 7, 23 and 24, that was the claim. Lord, have we not prophesied in your names and cast out demons in your name and done many miracles in your name? Lord, we got some works over here. And he says to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. So obviously, works themselves cannot be the authenticating reality of faith. Faith has to come before the works. Otherwise, you can come here completely without faith, attribute this as a work, and therefore indicative of faith, and be as lost as you can be. Everyone in this congregation today knows that you can sit here and be lost. And you can even go out, determine that you make moral application to Christian principles because you think they might be more advantageous to you in your life towards your, even your happiness and yet be without faith. So, so there's some things that need to be understood about faith. In Hebrews eleven six, one one thing is this, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So your works without faith... Do not, are not pleasing to God. Will he use them? Absolutely. In his providence, he may feed millions by your works. But if they are not works that are arising up out of faith, they are not pleasing to God in regards to his view of you in the work. 
To me, that, that's devastating news to a lot of folks who have built their entire life, their entire quote-unquote Christian life on doing good works. Because if faith is not there, it is not pleasing to God. It is impossible to please Him apart from faith. Can you do those same works from faith? Absolutely. And they should manifest similar works to those and many other works to those. But only in faith are they pleasing to God in terms of His relationship with you. So whatever James is talking about here, they, he assumes that they understand that this is a very unique kind of faith that only it only is pleasing to God. And without that, no matter what your works are, you are not going to be pleasing to God. Another thing we can be certain of that he's assuming they understand about faith is that it is a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We are saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. Obviously grace is not of ourselves, so it has to mean the faith. The faith is not of ourselves. It doesn't originate within us. It is the gift of God given to us whereby we believe. I think James is assuming that's the faith he's talking about. The faith without which you can't please God and the faith that you not the faith that you drum up in yourself, but the faith that is, comes to you by divine gift and through grace and is implanted or given to you whereby the veil has been removed and you see the glory of God in the face of Christ. I have to assume that that's what James understands is faith. I mean, the Holy Spirit is using James to communicate these truths. So he has to mean that, surely. In, verse, in chapter 5, Matthew, verses 14 and 16, something about the way they were in the Beatitudes there. He says that you, these who have received this like faith, you are the light of the world. No man lighting a lamp puts it under a bed, but rather he sets it up in a high place so that all in the room can see the light. Then he says something I've always been struck by, and profoundly, by the way, is he says to these who are the light, who are not to be hidden but set on a hilltop so that their light might show in all the world, he says to them, let the light in you shine in such a way that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father in heaven. So now we're getting into the idea of works. Faith is that gift of God whereby the light comes within us in the person of Christ. It's that sort of faith without which you can't be pleasing to God. And with that light, you are to work in such a way that the light shines through the works and the direction that what, what happens when it's seen is that their attention is drawn to the glory of the Father. Now we get a little bit of an idea of what he means by works. He's very specific, I think, about faith. But he's also saying something about the works if I take into account the scriptures here. We are to work in such a way as that they see the work and they glorify your Father in heaven. There can be an opposite reaction. You can do the work in such a way that the light of the glory of the truth of God shines forth and they hate it so much in John 3 that they resist it and run away from it and hide themselves in the darkness. So you could have two reactions. But here's what's clear to me that the works that he's speaking of arising up out of faith should have that effect. And that's why I think he doesn't de define the works. You can feed the orphans, you can feed the widows, or you can 
You can go down the street and go door to door and hand out tracts. The way you do the works and the works that you do, according to the truth, display the light of the glory of God. So there is a way to do the works. And I'm holding those two things in tension as I read in James here. Let me just say this. Uh, I, I did this in my notes, but he's used the word twice here, useless, or several times useless. It's useless faith. I don't even know why you would call it faith if it's useless, but that's the terminology he uses. And I just went through this text, and, and I'm, I'm making some application here, but listen to what he says. It's useless It's a useless faith in regards to salvation. Verse 14, he says this. If someone says he has faith but has no works, can that faith save him? It's useless. It's not saving faith. Number one, if if it's true faith, it will produce the works. But if he says, I have faith, but then he has no works or anything manifesting that true faith, it's useless for him. He is not saved by that faith. You're not saved if, if you're not saved either if you do the works without that faith. But useless faith means that it is not conducive, it does not lend itself to providing for salvation. That's the main point in our coming to faith, is that we are saved by grace through faith. And so if a man says he has no faith and it doesn't manifest itself in a, in a biblical way in his life, then he has no warrant to believe that he's saved. It's useless in regards to his salvation. I think by the example he gives in verse 15, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for, for their body, what is use is that? He's given that in relation to what he's just said, but I think the example itself gives me another idea in regards to the uselessness of that kind of faith. Number one, it's useless when it comes to ministering to needs around us. That's what he says. Can you think of the irony of this? I mean, some person that's destitute and naked and, and, and hungry and thirsty comes to you knowing you're, that you're making this claim of faith and they say, can you help me please? I'm hungry and I have no clothes and I'm thirsty and I'm destitute out here. And you say, as a man of faith, I declare upon you that you should be filled and thirst quenched and clothed. Go in peace. Did that have one iota of difference in the life of that man? He's just as naked, he's just as hungry, and he's just as thirsty. And your, all your religious-sounding declarations didn't serve a whit to alleviate the suffering around you. Not only did you not alleviate it practically, you undermined the very source of the faith that would have liberated him eternally. Because he's lost all regard for you in that moment. That sort of, if that's your faith, it's useless. Faith that doesn't manifest itself in Christian works and God-glorifying works is useless in regards to meeting the needs around us in an effective and an eternal way. I've said many times, you can, you can enter into hell with a full belly. Ministries that concentrate on feeding people and depriving them of the gospel, which constitutes a work of faith, lend, them, lend themselves to contributing to that person's entering into hell with a full belly. 
I say this with all my heart. Hell is no more pleasurable with a full belly than with an empty one. It is eternal condemnation and eternal damnation. So that faith is useless. What about his life in general? Verse 17, even so faith that has no works is dead, being by itself. And this, this, these had the idea of me of authenticating reality. In other words, if the faith doesn't have no, any works, if it doesn't manifest itself in this way, it's, it's dead. It's not even living. It's not a living faith. It's a mere declaration that you've decided to say on your own. And somehow by your declaration, you think that it sets you apart unto some special place. If it does not manifest itself in obedience and works, then it is dead as it can be. It, does not con- con- it is not conducive to life. And part of this authenticity, too, I think is, is indicated in verse 18. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. This is the way I think a lot of people d- divide this text. He's talking about faith and works. Either you have faith or you have works. You're not getting to heaven by works. You've got to go to heaven by faith. And they, they make their whole conversation on how we get to heaven, faith or works. And the obvious answer is faith, right? I mean, read Paul. We are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Read other scriptures. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. The cry of the Reformation, sola pistos. We are saved by faith alone. We absolutely embrace that. And they divide this passage up as though that's the options here. You're either saved by grace or works. And the Bible clearly says you're saved by grace through faith, not of works. So many Christians have disregarded the importance of works. And especially so if it begins begins to be unpopular or even dangerous to work or to obey the Scriptures as a man of faith in a culture that does not want to hear about your faith. That's a wrong division of this text, I believe. James is not juxtaposing faith and works and saying to them, you're saved and you're justified by your works. You say, well, he says that explicitly, but you've got to read it in the context. He's not saying alone, by works alone, as exclusive of faith. And it's dangerous for us to assume that. It's worthless in regards, I think, I just had true religion, but it's even demonic. In verse 19, which has always been stunning to me, you believe that God is one. That's your idea of faith. You say you believe there is one God. And it's almost, uh, almost, almost in a sarcastic way, he's, he seems to be congratulating them. You do well. Congratulations. You believe exactly what the demons believe. In fact, what they believe has an impact in the way that they feel about things. They tremble. Their belief is so strong that they shudder. There are people who claim a belief in one God and they don't shudder at all. If the demons shudder, how much more should those under this condemnation in the sinful flesh, if they believe in God, shudder? But we're afraid to scare anybody in our generation. God is a holy God and the demons recognize that. But, but the implication here is they don't work. Do demons work? Yeah. Yeah. And they may even do works that look on the surface like they're beneficial. But the ultimate design is to undermine the glory and the truth of God's Word. So the demons work, they just don't work from faith. And that's his point. The demons believe and they even have a visceral reaction to their belief. They shudder in the face of God. Congratulations if you are one of those who say, I believe in God. 
and think that that shouldn't manifest itself in obedience and in works of obedience to that same God because you're in the same camp as the demons. You believe in God, yes, you do well. And you may even have a visceral reaction to that. But if it is not a faith in that belief and the conviction in that God that produces a faith that glorifies that God, you're no different than the demons. You're having a visceral reaction to a belief of yours. That's frightening. So it's useless in that regard to true religion in the Puritan sense of the word. And in some ways to wisdom itself. Verse 20. But are you willing, he says to these people, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. If it's not manifesting this, these works in obedience, then it's useless. It doesn't get you any of these things. It's, it's useless in regards to your salvation. It's useless in regards to your ministry. It's useless in regards as an authenticating reality to what you claim to be true. It's useless in the regards to true religion. And it's useless in regards to wisdom. You foolish fellow. That's useless faith. And he categorizes useless faith as the faith that is declaration only and not manifested in a life of obedience. That's where it really comes home to us today, I think, to camp. Because when we live in a culture, when everything that's being promoted and publicized and pressed in upon us, when we live in a culture to where our fear of being persecuted or marginalized becomes the overwhelming driving force in our lives and we go silent, then we are not producing works out of faith. We are not being obedient to the faith that we say we have in Christ. And I think he's essentially saying, if that's the case, then the faith is useless because it's not producing obedience. And if it's not producing obedience, it calls into question the legitimacy or the authenticity of the faith. The martyrs didn't lay down their lives with a wishy-washy faith or with just a mere declaration of belief. They came into contact through God's grace, through faith with the risen Christ. Their convictions of His reality and His demands upon their life of obedience were so strong to them that they dared not do something as simple as throw a little incense on the fire and say, Jesus is Lord. They understood that faith bears obedience. And that obedience manifests itself in what we do, our works, our works. Notice in verses 21, he cites two examples, Abraham and Rahab later. But he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? So that poses a question, okay. Thought we were justified by faith alone. He says clearly, explicitly, Abraham was justified by works when he offered up Isaac. Then he says here, you see that faith now, so he's not excluding faith. He says faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected or brought to its completion. Or you might even say demonstrated as mature and authentic. And, he says, the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Interestingly enough, in Hebrews chapter 11, if you'll turn with me there, this is what it says about Abraham. By faith, notice here the obedience and, and that obedient hearing, obedience and acting upon that. 
by faith. Abraham, when he was called, the initiation here is the calling of God, obeyed. Now James is saying that's a work. The author of Hebrews says when he heard the call, he obeyed. That's where I'm getting my idea that the work that James is thinking of is obedience to Christ, to the Word of God. So Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place where he was to receive for an, which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Pure obedience to the Word of God. Brought about by the initiation of God himself in bringing the Word to bear in Abraham's life. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He picks up again with Abraham in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was said, the son of whom it was said to him, and Isaac shall your descendants be called. And he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. So when he cites Abraham as an example of faith working, you have to take into context God's interaction with Abraham. Abraham was obeying God even when outward circumstances indicated that everything God said should be called into question. What do you mean, kill my son? This is the one you said all the descendants of the earth would be named. This is the promised son. How can I kill him? Nevertheless, I have a word from God and I obey. That's faith. That belief in God, not at that instant, but the believing the promise from the beginning, that belief, it says, was imputed on his account as righteousness. Now, the obedience and the works that flowed, flowed from that source. Do you see the difference? The works weren't a mean to obtain that. The works were outflowing from having obtained it and believed the word of God. And that's exactly what I think James is saying. In this dispersal, in these environments where you are, it will be very tempting for you to say, I am a believer. I believe in God. But the consequences of you acting in obedience to that God may bring you face to face with a counterculture that does not appreciate such obedience. And it will be pressure on you to just make the statement and not do the work, not do the obedience. And I think James is warning them against that. And I, I'm convinced that that's how we got to where we are in this nation today. Because faith wasn't obedient and faith stopped working, stopped obeying. We started soft-pedaling the truth of God to accommodate family and friends and cultures. And we, we were overly harsh in one extreme and we were overly accommodating in the other. And as time has progressed, those things have gone to the wayside. We don't even speak of those anymore. Let me just say for the record this morning, homosexuality is a sin among many other sins, and all sin, unrepentant and unconfessed and unbrought before Christ, that go outside of Christ will receive the fullness of God's wrath and condemnation forever. That's true. And we shouldn't start soft-peddling that because we live in a culture where it's more and more acceptable because it's just one step in a train of steps that will lead us ultimately to embracing or being silent even when pedophilia will be running rampant and who knows, even bestiality at some point. I saw a story the other day where a woman married herself. And the commentator kind of jokingly says, well, how do you go about getting a divorce? 
going to be kind of hard to do. And it was just self-exaltation. I am the most valued. No one can value me as I value myself. So I marry myself. That way I get the most of the best of both worlds. Both spouses, in that case, they always exalt me. Now I have spouses that exalt me alone. Such depravity. And it came about because Christians remained silent. And our faith wasn't working. Our faith was silent and we weren't being obedient. I'm not saying we need to overreact and be harsh and mean and, and, and ill-spirited. He's going to speak to that later on in this letter. We're not to be acting that way. But we're not to be counter or softening the truth of God. Say it with tears in our eyes if need be. These people are homosexual. It makes me angry that they push this agenda. But it breaks my heart that these people are deceived and they will enter into the fullness of hell apart from Christ and the grace of God. That's the danger. And James speaks very practically to this issue. I'm convinced with all my heart. So he says his faith was working, verse 22, with his works. As a result of works then, the faith was perfected. I'm understanding that, that the faith itself was, was to produce that. It is, the, it is the outflow of faith. And faith does not come to its completion until it produces an obedience in our lives. Parents, teach your children this. Faith in Christ is... is paramount to obedience to Christ. That's why we begin with baptism and we insist upon them that this is an early step in your obedience to Christ, but you acknowledge Him now as Lord in your life. And the implications is that there will be a lifetime striving for a greater, more faithful obedience to all that He has revealed to us. This is what faith produces. And if it's not doing that in your life, then you have warrant to believe. And as we, as we heard last several weeks ago, don't look back at the day of your baptism and draw some assurance from there if there's no obedience at all in your life. Because if that's what you're calling faith, James says, it's dead. It will produce nothing. It is useless. I love Matthew 25, 35, and 40 because he says there to the righteous, you remember the story? He was hungry and naked and they clothed him and fed him. He was a stranger and they welcomed him and and the righteous say, when did we do that to you, Jesus? And it implies to me that they were being faithful to obey the Word of God. They were exercising hospitality. They were meeting needs. They were, they, were, they were exercising and being obedient to the Word of God. So much so that they didn't realize that in the doing so, they were, in, in essence, doing it to Christ Himself. And that's exactly what He says. When you were doing it to the least of these, you were doing it unto me. When you were obeying the word, you were being faithful. And he turns to the others and he says to them, depart from me. And he pulls them to himself. So faith is working. I wrote this and this is not exhaustive and it's not authoritative, but maybe you'll see where it's coming from. But the faith James is speaking here is of divine origin. It is the gift of God given by grace, wherein He reveals Himself, authenticates His Word, enables our believing, establishing in us an assurance of what is hoped for and conviction regarding what is not yet seen, unites us to Christ and produces us in us spiritual fruit and obedience. That sort of faith will work. It will work. 
It's not an optional thing. That sort of faith will produce almost naturally works. It will compel the Christian who has encountered the risen Christ to be obedient. And in obedience, he will manifest himself as obedient in the works that he does. That's why I think James is not specific about the works. Because the one who has faith in Christ, following the Word of God, obeying the Word of God, will see needs around him and minister to those needs in ways according to the truth of God, where those people will see the work itself and glorify the Father in heaven. Or they will hate the Father. Because the glory is showing there. So James leaves these believers in no uncertain place. If they think to themselves that they can find comfort and accommodation in a culture where their faith is unpopular by just saying among themselves, I am a man of faith, I believe in God. And that doesn't result in their obedience to the difficult commands and word of God in a culture that despises those commands. If it leads to the abandonment of those things, then that is not a saving faith. That is not faith. Because it's not producing that obedience and works of obedience. That's the sobering thing about the message this morning. Is I believe we're in a culture now to where many are saying they're Christians. But you can mark my word on this. The more dangerous and threatening that becomes, the fewer there will be who will be making such a profession. And some are making it now without obeying and are not having any impact in their culture at all. They're just still saying, I'm a Christian. We believe in Christian principles. And it's, and it's moving farther and farther away from this reality. Man in his very nature is a fallen creature. And apart from the restraining grace of God, we will despair. We will descend into the very pits of hell itself, even as a nation. And there will be misery all around. And I fear that if we don't speak up now at some cost, we may have to later at the cost of our lives. And I pray that it's time for us to speak up as Christians. Do it with grace, but hold fast to the truth of God. Hold fast to the truth of Christ. Vote accordingly if I, if I risk being too political. But be engaged and speak the truth in love as the scriptures say. Stand with me this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I would have to confess, and I trust that each of us would, but there are times in our lives where it's more convenient to disregard your word to find acceptance among peers or in the community or in the society. Lord, I pray that you would give us a backbone, spiritual backbone. Lord, that those of us who have come to know Jesus Christ would understand that it's never been cheap. It's never been without cost to be a disciple of Christ. Jesus himself said, any man who's not willing to give up it, yea, his own life cannot be my disciple. And so, Father, I pray that you would move in our hearts and bring us to the realization of just how important obedience to your word is to those who make the claim of faith in Christ. We are thankful for the gift of faith whereby we have been born again. Father, help us to be mindful of obedience, of a lifelong obligation as those who belong to Christ to following his word. He is to be Lord of our lives. Father, have your way in these moments of invitation and reflection upon your word as we stand together, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.